So I, about a year ago, I was in Louisville, and uh, I was at a conference and doing some uh, work with colleagues who were doing projects and other writing th uh, kinds of things, research projects. And it was a great time, and as it, I was heading back here, um, I'm not known to leave a lot of extra time in my schedule. I don't like to wait at airports and things like that. I'm, I'm like the opposite of Nicole and Brian who get to the airport like six hours ahead of time. I like to get to the airport just enough time that I can, you know, get through security, wait, and then get on the plane. That's sort of my, my MO. So I had left myself, I actually was proud of myself this particular morning. I had left myself a little bit more than enough time to get to the airport. Uh, and I was basically just retracing my steps the way I'd gone a few days before. Uh, but the only problem was they were doing highway construction on the major interstates. And so the normal path back to the airport was blocked. And you had to take this detour, and I missed a turn, and suddenly I'm in a lane. I can't get all the way over here. And I realized I have to get off the interstate and get back on so that I can sort of get going where I need to go. I sort of, I can see the highway. I know where I need to be going. But once, it's one of those places where after you get off the highway, there is no way to get back on it. You've ever been in those places? Suddenly I'm driving in the dark dingy parts of Louisville that I've never seen before, sort of residential areas, warehouses and, and things, and I turn around, I'm trying, you know, my, my sense of direction is pretty good, so I know sort of where I need to be going, and I'm trying to fight my way back, I, I get my GPS out, and eventually I make it back to the highway, I make it back to the airport, and I don't miss my plane, so, but it, it was, so it has a, ha a happy ending, but have you ever been in that situation where you're, you know where you're supposed to be going, and you can even see where you're supposed to be going, but you just can't quite get there, at least not on your own. Well, this season, we're going to be talking about that. How do we find our way again? How do we put ourselves in this path? We have this vague sense of where we're supposed to be going as Christians on this journey with Jesus, and how do we get on the path and stay on the path and find our way home? The first Sunday in Lent is always uh, a Sunday when we are dealing with Jesus out in the wilderness. It sort of sets the tone for the 40 days of Lent. And we often approach this story simply as a temptation narrative, right? This is where uh, Satan or the devil tempts Jesus in the wilderness three times. And what are the three temptations? You were listening, right? What are the three? Food, turn this stone into bread. You're hungry, Jesus. Power, right? I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. And testing God. You know, he takes him up to the highest point. Just throw yourself down. Because it says in your scripture that God won't let your foot touch the ground, right? Be amazing, Jesus. And so it's, it's this test between who Jesus is called to be and who Jesus is tempted to be. It's really a time of identity claiming for Jesus. This is after his baptism and before his public ministry. And so he's out there, he's gone on this vision quest, if you will. He's out in the desert and he's doing these things. He's, he's sort of immersing himself in these ancient practices, if you will, of fasting and prayer and scripture, because it's the scripture that comes to him as he answers the, the temptation every time. It's a scripture that he draws on from his deep well of tradition. 
And so Jesus is girding himself up with these ancient practices so that he knows the road that he's going to go on. And he knows how to stay on that road. It might be a good guide for us to keep in mind as we begin this journey of Lent together. Now, in addition to looking at the scriptures every Sunday during Lent, we're also going to be looking at a book by the name of Finding Our Way Again, The Return of the Ancient Practices by Brian McLaren. And these are available in Fellowship Hall for those of you who'd like to study it on your own. For those of you who'd like to study it in a group, uh, there's a Sunday morning class that Byron and Nicole and I are going to be teaching at 11 o'clock. So uh, there's an opportunity on Sunday mornings. I'm also going to be teaching this class on, on Monday nights. And then in addition to that, there's some other classes that are going to help us keep on the path, like keeping on the path of Paul, you know, Paul's writings, uh, that Chip is teaching that class. And, and there's a, another Latin devotional that you'll have a chance to, to be part of, Albert Holtz, the same author that we use during uh, Advent, the Advent season. And Lee is going to be teaching a class, a kind of a drop-in class. You don't, it's been driving people nuts because you can't sign up for this class. She wants people to just drop in and come if you want and be part of the conversation. Doesn't even, uh, so that's an opportunity for you to find ways to stay on this path. We're going to be using this book as a touchstone, though. It's not, we're not going to do everything out of this book or try to do it, but it's a launching pad, and it will be a touchstone to help us find, get our bearings during Lent. Now, the first thing I want to say about it is that uh, Brian McLaren is really clear that Christianity is more about being a way than anything else, a way of life. And I want us to think about Christianity's way of life. He tells a story. Uh, he, was, he was going to a conference with 500 pastors, and he had been invited, he thought, to introduce the speaker, Dr. Senge, uh, who had done a lot of work, he was not a theologian or anything, but he had done a lot of work in systems thinking, and he was sort of an expert in the field, and they were going to be talking to him via satellite, and so he thought his job was to simply introduce him, and so he had done his reading and, and, and had a good little bio prepared, and then when he was with the organizer of the conference, the day before this was supposed to happen, the day before the session, they said, I hope you're, you know, you seem awfully relaxed and hope you're all ready for your interview with Dr. Senge tomorrow. He said, yeah, I'm, I'm ready. And then he realized, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to be interviewing this guy by satellite for an hour and a half. So he rushes back to his room. He sort of does his homework and, you know, really beefs up his preparation now because this is not just a little three-minute introduction. This has got to be a 90-minute conversation with all these pastors and this world-renowned expert in the field of system thinking. And so he redoes his stuff. And the first thing, uh, when they get on... And the next morning, the first thing that happens is the satellite feed doesn't work. So he's up there like doing the song and dance and kind of extending it. They keeps getting the sign, keep it going, keep it going. And then finally, Dr. Senge comes on. And uh, he sort of gathers himself and he says, Dr. Senge, it's great to see you. Um, and I uh, was just wondering what it's like for you to address a, a conference of 500 pastors. This isn't your normal group that you talk to. And he said, yeah, I've been thinking about that a lot. As a matter of fact, um, in preparation for this, I have a question for you. <laughs> Suddenly now he has to answer a question, not just ask a question. He says, um, I went to a bookstore the other day and I, w I had a little time uh, to, to spare. And so I went up to the bookstore manager and I said, What's the what are the best-selling books these days? Right now, this, you know, what are currently the best-selling books? The first, the number one selling group of books were 
how to make money in the new information economy, how to get rich on the internet. That made a lot of sense. A lot of people were trying to figure a way to do that. He said the second most uh, best-selling books were books on spirituality. But the biggest group within that were books on Zen Buddhism. And he says, so what I'd like to ask your 500 pastors is why do you think that books on Zen Buddhism are so exciting and intriguing to people these days and not Christianity? It's a pretty good question to ask a, a, a group of 500 pastors. And, and he, she says, Brian, what do you think? <laughs> and like a good interviewer, he says, Dr. Senge, what do you think? You know, eventually he sort of pushed the question back to him. And he says, here's what I think. And I want to read the response because it's, it's really good. It made me think and pause. I think it's because Buddhism presents itself as a way of life and Christianity presents itself as a system of belief. So I would want to get Christian ministers thinking about how to rediscover their own faith as a way of life because that's what people are searching for today. That's what they need the most. Not just a system of belief, but a way of life. A way of life. Now that got Brian McLaren thinking and as his other colleagues. He said it was the most powerful part of that whole conference as they started to talk about what it would mean to present and to live Christianity as a way of life and not just a system of beliefs or practices. I was, uh, for my birthday celebration, many of you know that Holly is down in Florida this week, feeling very guilty that she's missing both my birthday and Valentine's Day with me. But I went out last night. I, I, it was actually a pretty dream day for me. I had like basketball galore. I saw a basketball game with a, a good friend of mine whose son's on a high school team in the D.C. area. And then I had recorded the Duke-Virginia game and the Maryland-Wisconsin game. And, and I had recorded the Kansas. I had like a triple header lined up. So then about 9 o'clock last night, I, I was thinking, I was still hungry. And I said, you know, I could just have some soup from the refrigerator, but it's my birthday. I'm going to walk down, three doors down, to Ruth's Chris, and I'm, we have a gift card, and I'm going to have, uh, order a steak sandwich at the bar, which you can order from their bar menu. It's pretty inexpensive. I'm going to go drink my Coke and have a steak sandwich at the bar and just uh, celebrate my birthday that way. Well, I, uh, I thought I'd just be sitting there by myself, which is kind of nice, but anytime I've ever gone there, Holly and I have gone there a couple times to take advantage of the early bird special there at the, the bar. It's pretty inexpensive to have a steak salad or something. Um, and so, but I had these wonderful conversations with two couples on my left and my right. And with the couple on the left, uh, our conversation sort of got around to the fact that they were intrigued that I was a pastor and what did that mean and how did I become a pastor and where was my church and all of, the, all of these things. And they had been in and out of the church themselves over the years. Their, their granddaughter had just been baptized in a Methodist church up in Timonium. But one of the things they said to me was really striking. They said, yeah, sometimes going to church makes it feel like it's just a bunch of rules and everybody is set up to fail. It makes you feel like you're a failure. No one, can, no one can live by all those rules. And I thought, isn't that interesting? That that was their conception of Christianity. Sometimes we have reduced Christianity to a set of rules or just a system of beliefs when all along it's been a way of life. From the very beginning, it's been a way of life. As a matter of fact, if you go into the, in the scriptures, um, Jesus, in, in the New Testament, it's, Jesus doesn't talk about uh, converts, and, and he talks about disciples over and over, people who will follow and learn after him. 
As a matter of fact, uh, that language of discipleship is about 500 times in the Bible, following, that, that verb gets used over and over again, and that verb follow is used about 90 times, and the word Christian is used like three times. But the ones who are called to be in the life of Christ are to be followers, to follow this way. And as a matter of fact, that early, early description of the Christian movement was what? The way. The way. It was a path. It was, not, uh, it was not sort of set in stone yet. It was, not, it was this way of life that was life-giving. And so this book is about returning to these ancient practices of our faith, but these are practices that are rooted also in Judaism and Islam. He goes all the way back to the stories, the great three monotheistic faiths, the, the life of Abraham. And so what are these practices that we all share in common? We share sacred meals, fixed hour prayers, we share uh, sacred texts, and how do we... How do we do that? Now, here's what he talks about in terms of practices, what they are and what they do. We have all these practices as ways of being Christian and ways that put us in the path. He says, practices are actions within our power that help us to narrow the gap. That's the gap between who we feel called to be by God, these people of compassion, of love and justice, and the people that we actually are. One of the phrases he uses I love so much. He says, without sort of, sort of a disciplined life, we feel our deepest channels silting in. Isn't that a great way to describe our lives? And all of the stuff that just comes upon us. And, and Nicole mentioned it in our prayer. We have this, all of these things, all of these busy schedules, and sometimes that leads to shallow lives because our deepest channels silt in. And one of the things he suggests that these ancient practices do for us, these practices of prayer and reading the scripture and practices of, of justice and mercy and engaging in worship, you're engaging in a Christian practice this morning, of worship, this ancient thing, is they help us narrow the gap between who we are called to be and who we are today. They're the thing, it's, it's like when you wake up one morning and you say, well, I'm gonna run a marathon. And if you just go out, try to run a marathon the next day, you're not really capable of doing that. You have to, put, you have to do things, and there are ways to train that are going to allow you to run that marathon if you'll just stick with the schedule, right? If you're going to do a little bit, and then a little bit more, and then a little bit more. I feel like such a slacker. I'm the only one in my family who's never run a half marathon. My daughters have both done it now. Holly's run Boston Marathon and a bunch of things. But it, I've never had the discipline to do that. I could run a marathon if I wanted to. Right? I could get into the habit of doing that. Practices are the things that make possible. Uh, they, give, they give us this, they narrow the gap between what we can do right now and what we are capable of doing. He talks about practices as the things, you know, what does prayer do? What does reading scripture do? Uh, what does coming together in community around a table do? These practices tune our radios to the frequency of the holy, he says. They are the ways of becoming awake and staying awake to God. They're not magical, but they just put us in a place where maybe we can listen more deeply for God, where we can pay attention to what God's already doing around us. If we're praying regularly, if we're reading scripture regularly, if we are coming together in worship regularly, then we tune ourselves into the ways of God in the world. These practices help keep us on the path. Practices take us not just to heaven, like that's the end point, but to live also now in the way of the kingdom. It's not an either or, it's a both and. 
These practices of faith engage us in the work of God's kingdom here and now. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And sometimes we've reduced Christianity just to the end game. It's all about getting to the end. But the journey is really what it's about. And living as participants and signs of God's kingdom now are what it's about. Now, this is one of the things I love that he says. He says, practices don't make perfect. They don't just turn us into perfect saints, but they do make possible. They do make this way of life possible for us. When we engage ourselves in this tradition and we engage ourselves in the ways of this faith, they make something different possible in our lives. We connect to a story. We connect to a God. We connect to other Christians who have gone before us. They make a way of life possible possible that is impossible just by ourselves. I went to my first AA meeting this week here at the church. I've been telling the, one of the leaders that I was going to stop in and just join them for a day and just sit and observe. I, I've often observed sort of on the edges, but I've always wanted to sort of give uh, the group their space. We have a group that meets on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays here, and it's a robust chapter that's meeting here. A lot of folks, a lot of sense of community here. Uh, but mostly I will just sort of run in and get my tea as they're gathering and then sort of give them their space. But this Friday morning, I decided to just sit with them. And as I did, I, uh, I actually uh, ended up meeting a church member of ours who's talked with me about his journey in recovery. And so he invited me to sit next to him. And, uh, was, and it's just a wonderful experience. Because if there's a group of people that know that they need a community of people to keep them on a path, it's AA. And as a pastor, you're not probably not, you're not supposed to do take notes during a meeting, but I, but I was taking notes. And I want to share with you just a couple of the things that I learned, because I learned some really profound things. God doesn't make winners or losers. God makes choosers. For some people, God is the scariest three-letter word, as they were talking about uh, this spirituality and, and making that part of the recovery. It was a really wonderful conversation because it was started by uh, a young man who was coming out of a halfway house and he wanted to know from the wisdom of the group, how do I stay clean? How do I make it? And so all these different people were sharing their stories and they were sharing their wisdom and I was just touched and moved by the depth of compassion for one another, but also this strong sense of accountability. And over and over, what they said to this young man was, you gotta trust the program, you gotta work the program, you gotta do the program, you gotta show up, you've gotta be here, you can't try to do this on your own, you've gotta trust that there are other people who will help you on this path. And you, there are certain things you can do hanging around with people who are finding a new way to life, and there are certain things you shouldn't do, like hanging around with your old friends who are just going to drag you down. There was a, a, great, a great line that I, that I think is going to be a sermon someday. It was about being honest and being, uh, being vulnerable. And I have to tell you that I probably experienced as much vulnerability and honesty in that one-hour AA meeting as I sometimes experience in a whole year of church life. Because in church, sometimes we always put our best foot forward, our best face on, our best selves forward. We're not always, 
willing to let the guard down because we want everyone to think we're doing all right on this path. But there was such honesty and such compassion and such depth in that conversation. They said, uh, they said oh, I'm trying to think. Here it is. Now, practices that helps you stay on the path. They started talking about that. I'm looking for this one little thing that it would probably do well for us if we would, oh, here it is. Um, if your butt's on fire, say something. What they, were, what they were trying to say with that is if you're in trouble, speak up. And this is the other part. Only, the only winners at AA are the losers that keep coming back. All of us who recognize that we need help on this journey. All of those tie-ins, all those overlaps, as I was thinking about this way of life that's happening in Fellowship Hall on Mondays and Wednesdays and Fridays, and then this way of life that's happening on Sundays for us as well or Wednesday nights, or Tuesdays, or whenever it is that we gather together to pray and to study and to hold each other accountable and to draw each other a little farther down this road. It would be amazing if we saw ourselves as a community who practice a way of life and not just a system of belief and who know that it's a matter of life and death for us because that's something that's also pretty clear when you hang out uh, at AA. Now, next week, we're going to talk about your particular spiritual pathways. And what are some of the practices you might connect to based on who you are and who God made you to be personality-wise in terms of your own spiritual temperament? So that's what we'll talk about next week. The following couple Sundays, we'll talk about some practices themselves. We're going to talk about the way of prayer. Reverend Nicole is going to preach about that. I'm going to preach about the way of Lexio Divina, the way of reading sacred scripture and how that might strengthen us, uh, not just that particular practice, but all sacred reading. The way of justice and mercy, uh, Reverend Enger, Enger is going to preach about those outward acts of justice and mercy, those outward practices that we do that keep us on the path. And then we'll move into Holy Week, the way of the crowd and the way of the servant and the way of the cross and the way of life. So this is going to be our, our guide through the season. April Doss, a member of our church, has started keeping a blog. Have any of you read her blog yet? I've, I've commended it to you a couple times. It's going to be on the website. We'll have a link to it this week. And I would really encourage you to take a look at it. It's some really powerful stuff. She's writing reflections on real life and faith and how do those intersect. And she put, posted something a week ago called Stuck in the Distance. And I want to read just a section of it uh, for you as it close today. She told a story about uh, how when her son was young, um, it was one of those days when it was a little too quiet in the house. You ever have one of those with your kids where, like, you know Grady's going off to do something because you haven't heard from him in a little while? So it was a little too quiet, and so she went and discovered that he had sort of locked himself in his room. He was about four at the time. And when finally did open the door, was able to get the door open, uh, she saw this pile of empty candy wrappers because he had pulled this, all this candy and eaten it all at once. And... She didn't scold him, and she didn't berate him. She said, no, you're going to rot your teeth, and you're going to get a tummy ache here. Let's go find a healthy snack for you to, to eat instead. And so, but as she reflects on that later, she says, in my best moments, I want nothing more than to live a life of meaning and purpose, to relish each day, to be kind to other people, and to leave the world a better place. Other times, though, shiny distractions that beckon for my attention, and fear leads me down the primrose path to all my shortcomings, 
whispering in my ear that it's really okay, that gossiping about others will make me feel better, that if I buy that thing I really don't need and might not be able to afford, it's only a harmless self-indulgence, that if only other people do what I want them to do and be who I want them to be, then we'd all truly be happy. At those times, I couldn't be further from God. And like me and my son that day with the candy, it isn't God that's moved or decided to hide his face. Quite the contrary, whenever I want to self-indulge in all of my character defects, I'm the one who goes into my room, locks the door, and tells God, no thanks, I've got this. I'm doing fine on my own. Luckily, when my stomach aches and my teeth hurt, and I'm sick and tired of being full of myself, God's waiting to put me back on the path towards something healthier and better, towards becoming more who God intends me to be, towards finding a healthier way to walk through the world, finding a better way to walk through the world. Friends, I invite you on this journey as we find our way again through the season, knowing that it's God who draws us onto the path. It's God who keeps us on the path. It's God who draws us forward.